Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On this Saturday episode of the show, we are revisiting a topic that I covered in episode 83 last fall on residencies, internships, specialization, and diversity, and how the lack of diversity limits the, that show focused on the how the lack of diversity limits the pipeline of not only veterinary specialists, but also faculty. So today, uh, we are going to hear one specialist story of how he navigated through all of the hurdles to become the great surgeon that he is today. Dr. Courtney Campbell, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Dr. Greenhill. I am honored to be here. And um, that's a tough introduction to live up to uh, as far as a great surgeon, but I try. I try really hard. (laughs) So as is our custom on the show, we like to keep it uh, very informal and have really good conversations. So Courtney, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Introduce yourself. I, oh, wow, that is tough. You know, that's probably the most anxiety-inducing question in all of history, which tell me, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm an Aries and I like, no, I would say this, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a kid who's grown, who grew up in the woods. You know, my mom, she's from the West Indies, uh, born and raised in in a country called Antigua. My dad, he's from New Britain, Connecticut, and they they met in the Peace Corps. uh, And then my mom came over to the United States and and we they settled in a, a really small town initially called New Britain, but then Burlington. And if you've ever been to Burlington, Connecticut, or you know anything about Connecticut, you know that the woods is a really strong part of your upbringing. You know what I mean? And I kind of joke around like I was raised by foxes and wolves and stuff. But the reality is you could just peer out your window and see a bunch of wildlife. And you combine that with all of these wildlife documentaries that I used to watch sitting there in the living room with my dad. And so when you put those two together, both outside your living room is wildlife, inside your house, there's wildlife, you start to really develop a strong love for animals. And I started to find out through, and this is going to sound crazy weird, but through a tragedy, I actually started to realize that I loved medicine and uh, maybe tragedy is too strong of a word. But through heartache, I realized that I love medicine. And it was in the midst of I was having an asthma attack. My doctor was explaining to me what was actually happening in my lungs at the level of my bronchioles, primary, secondary, tertiary bronchioles. And I was like, wow, that's happening in my body right now. This is crazy. Now, this is despite the fact that I felt like I was breathing through a straw or an elephant was sitting on my chest. If you can feel like you're suffocating and still be passionate about physiology and medicine, you know for sure that, you know, this is probably what you should do. And so I just combine those two, that love for animals, uh, just being outside in Connecticut and combine that with a love for medicine. And the two were, you know, form that marriage of veterinary medicine. And then the journey starts. And that's what I'm happy I get a chance to talk to you about today, because for so many people, that journey is uh, the axiom, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Um, And so you have your highs and your lows, your successes and disappointments. And that is really where that journey started for me. And then now, all the way till I get a chance to talk to you. So uh, a couple of things. One, I've driven from end to end of Connecticut, which of course is a a fairly small state, right? It's one of the smaller ones, but I've driven there um, a few times. One of those, I admit, uh, there's some some bougie in the background. I like going to Martha's Vineyard. There we go. So it's like part of the like journey. And I was like, and, and, you know, there's, there are some double banjo kind of situations (laughs) where like you just keep driving and like, Wow. It is really rural. And I don't think a lot of people realize just how, how rural Connecticut um, can be. And then the other thing I just have to say, like as, as someone who also has asthma, I have not ever had uh, 
um, the experience where they were experiencing and telling me all about what was happening in my body. I, I don't care. Right. Like, where is the truth? I, <laughs> right. yeah. I was too young. <laughs> Listen, when you're young, you feel invincible. And knowing that the mortality rate associated with asthma is higher among African-Americans, I should have been really worried. I should have been <laughs> But, but I was young and I was just thinking, oh, man, this is kind of neat. Like, OK, well, maybe I'll breathe later, you know. So you're right. It is it's stressful. And uh, I remember yeah, the disparity you bring up in, in Connecticut. It is it is true. You know, I don't have, unfortunately, the statistics to 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 talk about this in detail. But, yeah, there's it's a, a sort of economic stratification yeah. within, within Connecticut. I remember Conan O'Brien had joked that. Um, Connecticut makes money the old-fashioned way. It steals it from poor people or something like that. And I was just like, oh, that's so harsh, Conan, that's so harsh. But it, he was basically making a social commentary on Connecticut and how there is that stratification where people who are very wealthy are extremely wealthy and people who are yeah. not are not. Are not. And, uh, you saw that driving through, you know, driving through uh, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. So how old were you when you knew that you wanted to be a veterinarian? Like that that was an option, like that was a thing. Certainly there's medicine. And then it was like, oh, wait, I can do these two things together. How old were you? You know, I was in high school. I was definitely in high school when I realized that I wanted to be a veterinarian. But like any critically thinking individual, any person who loves the intellectual rigor of their classroom and life, I had other interests, right? And so you do hear some people who are not within the profession, they'll romanticize the idea of being a veterinarian. Oh, this is all you ever wanted to do in life. And you uh, you knew from the moment that you left the wound that you wanted to be a veterinarian. A veterinarian. And for a lot of us, yeah, that's true. But then there's a, a large contingent of us who also had other interests. And that's what I think makes us so rich and diverse. I mean, just as an example, when I was in high school, there was a very, uh, there was a chunk of time, almost a year where I knew that I was going to pursue one of three professions. I was either going to be a veterinarian, I was going to be a chef, or I was going to be a magician. One of those three I was going to do because I loved all three so much. And after a conversation with my parents, the magician quickly dropped off the list um, and, uh, we, you know, I started, and I had even started to research what it would take to, to apply to a culinary institute and those sorts of things. So I think that's what makes us fun. That's what makes us rich. That's what adds character to this profession is the fact that all of us have, you know, incredible backgrounds. I mean, I used to wrestle in high school. I it was in, I was in band. I didn't even realize band was a nerdy thing to be interested in until I graduated from high school. I thought everybody thought band was cool and playing the snare drum. I think you remember, um, oh, geez, uh, Nick Cannon on, in his movie Drumline. That was me, you know, in high school. So I think that, uh, you know, all of those interests make it fun, you know. Band nerds never knew that they were band nerds until uh, they get. Uh, I'm mom to a band. <laughs> kid okay, so you get who it. Plays a, a couple of instruments, but also uh, uh, also a percussionist on drumline. And so you know, she was like, we were the the cool nerds of the. <laughs> right, right. That's a thing. It's like you for for a real for a second you thought you were cool amongst the band nerds, right? Exactly. That band camp, right? And so 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 okay. So your parents said magician that's that's nice Um, maybe a hobby I'm guessing that's probably how they characterize that but I still listen I still go crazy over it I still like the David Blaine's of this world there's the uh, a a show on uh true tv called the Carbonaro effect Mm -hmm. I still go crazy over that I just don't I'm like I'm like how do you guys do that so listen that's a complete aside sorry we're going off on a tangent well, what? no, it's it's actually not because I think that, you know, one of the things that I talked to, uh, to folks um, about, and so I'm going to actually interject in this conversation, one, young men do express an interest in the profession later than, um, than women. 
Um, and so women usually express that interest um, um, by the age of 10. Young men typically are about 13, 14 when they really are like, yeah, this, this is what I want to do. The interest might be there, but the actual kind of thought about, oh, I, this is this is the career that allows me to, to you know, pursue these interests. So, so there's one for you. You were a little right. older. Be, before <laughs> and, you go on to number two, I, I really want to hear number two. Is there, or do you maybe want to do this later? Is there any hypothesis as to why we, or is it just how males de- develop? Part of it has to do with the socialization around education. And so, um, and so only about 40% of men, and, and this is just irrespective of, of race, right. um, only about 40% of men in the U.S. have education beyond high school, right? right. So like we're, we see images of like everybody going, right? And so, you know, that the imagery is not actually truly reflective of the reality. So when you're talking about only 40%, then, you know, the folks that are, um, uh, I guess, modeling higher ed for young men aren't are there. Right. And so, um, and so it it makes it challenging. We also know that men don't persist to higher ed at the same rate as their, um, uh, female counterparts. Um, and then when they do like, so for example, out of 100, um, out of 100 male college students, only about 28 will actually graduate. Okay. Right. So, so persistence is, is a challenge. So, um, when you kind of put all of these pieces together. That's why young men kind of come to certain, um, to some careers a little bit later because they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're swimming upstream. Of course. (laughs) Right. So, and then the second piece is that families of color tend to um, have a lot more sway (laughs) in terms of influence on what careers will be for their kids, right? And so that is changing a bit. And and certainly it changes also as you move up the socioeconomic ladder, right? Mm -hmm. If you have more, if you're more affluent, then there's more choices. And so your parents are just like, okay, well, you're more conditioned to say, okay, we're going to go do, you're going to go to college and you'll find something. <laughs> to, to, sure, sure. Right, right. That we'll allows you to move out of my house and out of my basement. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, but, you know, generally speaking, kind of in some of those formative years, it is, um, yeah, magician, that's great. <laughs> that's exactly how the conversation went. It's like, okay, so uh, have you thought this through exactly? What what type and where? You know, definitely no active discouragement, but more of like, let's think about this critically for a second. And, um, you know, what was interesting too is when it goes into critical thinking, I, think I remember talking with uh, a prominent chef and uh, he just said, hey, you got to be very circumspect about choosing this profession because you are going to work long hours on your feet. You're going to spend, uh, you're going to spend a long time on your feet and you're going to work holidays. And then, you know, fast forward, I'm a surgeon and, um, all of that is true, (laughs) but I'm just not making food. You know what I mean? So it's just, it was interesting. I was like, okay, long hours on my feet, uh, holidays, definitely don't want to do that. And then fast 20 years later, you know, look, look where I ended up. So mentorship into veterinary medicine look like for you. Mentorship was, it, it, it's it's such a critical subject matter to talk about, partly because as you, as you said, you know, as you're coming up through school, what you're looking for is that, that example, uh, somebody that, you know, they tell a young child, hey, you can grow up to be whatever you want to be. And uh, that sounds nice. I think that that's a nice adage to say, but if you don't have living, breathing examples and symbols of that aspirational career, that can be challenging for a lot of people, particularly the stats that you just mentioned, where 40% of males, you know, have education not beyond high school or the socialization that you mentioned around education. And so when I think of mentorship, I think about, all right, now that you've established the fact that you want to be, you know, a veterinarian, let's take a look around. Do you see any veterinarians that look like you? Do you see anybody in the animal health industry that looks quite like you? Uh, And 
when you add that to the fact that, you know, my upbringing, you know, the animal health wasn't a, a like a number one priority. My mm -hmm. mom loves animals. Dad loves animals. But culturally in the West Indies and then also in Connecticut, in New Britain, all of those in all of those influenced my understanding towards animals. And I had to mature through that understanding. Right. Understanding like, OK, this is what true animal health is is about and uh that, that that interest matured but you're right that idea of mentorship just wasn't there it, it just plain and simple wasn't there in terms of um pursuing veterinary medicine and so you go all right well you get into undergrad you start pursuing uh you start looking into how to become a veterinarian in, in the undergraduate career and there's still not strong mentorship there and I didn't really understand just how stark and abysmal the statistics were in veterinary medicine until much later. I mean, I'm talking well into my veterinary career that I start to really look at the numbers and the percentages. And once I started to do that, it made sense why I didn't see the mentorship growing up. It made sense why I didn't even see it in vet school, not in undergrad, even as a veterinarian. It's because you take a look around and you say to yourself, oh, because there's not many of us. I mean, if you had put just veterinary medicine and just put a sort of like a class photo on the wall and just start from 2020 and then just work, walk through the hallway backwards, you know, not only would you see it predominantly wide, but you would also see it actually gets from bad to worse as you go as you go earlier and earlier. It's not like you see this gradual transition. It just goes from bad to worse. So I think, you know, if people are looking at the statistics now and you obviously know the statistics uh, better than I do, if you're looking at them now and you're concerned now, imagine, um, shoot, imagine a guy like me, you know, or older who was going through that profession in that time and how challenging it was. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to vet school. Sure. You jump these hurdles. You're, you, you're like, the parents are like, okay, all right, cool. It's going to be a doctor. Nice. Nice. <laughs> that fits. Right. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> he's going to be able to make good. He's going to be able to still cook and take care of himself. That right. More, more importantly, magician is no longer a possibility. Right. Yeah. Cross that off the list. <laughs> No shade against the magicians. Like, exactly. They're doing really, really cool stuff. Right. Listen, listen, let's be clear. No magician shade. No magician shade. We love magicians. Yes. So so how did you, you know, where did you apply and 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 what was the application experience like for you? And so, you know, clearly um, at AAVMC, we've just put out a paper talking a bit about kind of some of the biases that mm -hmm. um are um, inherent in some of the requirements and, sure. and just kind of the, the layers of potential for disadvantage. So what was the application kind of process like for you, you know, last year? Yeah, listen, yeah. It's, 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 it's so it's critical to bring that up because that I think is where um, you could potentially talk about where the pipeline issues begin, right? And arguably, you and I have had this conversation both online and offline about the idea of pre-pre-vet, where before you even get to be a pre-veterinary student in undergrad, there are some challenges, pipeline issues related to that. But because you and I are having conversation about specialty veterinary medicine, I just want to fast forward in that pipeline and just kind of talk a little bit about undergrad and vet school and application process like you mentioned. And that is, you know, it is you start to understand the idea of network and what a network really is. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the adage or the axiom that your network is your net worth. But mm -hmm. at that point, I started to understand how important a network can be because the application process can be tricky. There's some nuances in the way you write a letter. For instance, when you're writing a cover letter, there's things that they really want to see. Number one, they want to see that you've shown a sense of maturity, that you understand what the profession is about. Number two, why you want to go to vet school, what's your story? And then three, and number four, what do veterinarians actually do? You know what I mean? So what, what have you done to advance that idea, that pursuit? And if you don't know those four components, if you don't know that that's what they look, like, look for in a letter, then you're out to yeah. see. And so my application process was 
uh, I wouldn't say strongly mentored, but I had to go out and seek that that it, that um, that knowledge from from my advisors, and uh, I noticed that my peers were possibly getting additional information or they, you know, and listen, it's a competitive landscape, right? So I get it that they don't want to just put their business out there because somebody might take their spot. But I just noticed that what was happening for me was that all of my knowledge and all of my access and, and nuance was more self-mediated versus a passive versus a passive process where I would be allowed to study or I'd allow myself to study for a final exam. And then I would get this information about how to apply secondhand. What I was doing was both actively studying and trying to pass this final exam and trying to apply for vet school. And that made it very difficult. I mean, when you look at just an example of, of the, on the human side, they were looking at just Stanford University uh, Medical School, and they found that those who are underrepresented in medicine, fifty um, percent of them sort of fell off the track of the pre-med track, wow. while only seventeen percent of Caucasians sort of fell off that track. So there are some along the journey of pre-vet, pre-med. Yeah. You'll find that those who are underrepresented in the profession seem to just sort of become wayward or lose their path. And I don't think that that's by, by, by accident. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, um, <clears throat> I mean, there are real, very real barriers. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, folks are like, Oh, the, like she's suggesting that the world is like totally against, I'm like a lot of this stuff I think is not, um, you know, I don't argue that it's inherently malicious. It's just, wired and created in such a way that it doesn't consider other populations (laughs) dominant one. And so, you know, it it is um, really a challenge uh, for, for some students. So, so let's fast forward, you've gone to vet school and now you are like, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to do post vet school. How did you decide to do an internship? Did you already know that you wanted to be a surgeon? Sure. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. I, I think this happens to a lot of uh, young vets who are very impressionable is that you'll meet somebody who's bright, dynamic, charismatic, intelligent, and they will turn you on to a particular discipline. And you didn't even know that you wanted to do that discipline. And that individual is Dr. Michael Bailey. He was a really uh, prominent and talented radiologist from uh, Tuskegee. He had actually served uh, in in Washington, D.C. also for a year after, you know, after he had become a veterinary radiologist. And so, or, or I think he was a lobbyist on behalf of veterinary medicine. I'm not sure exactly, but he was just a remarkable individual. And I remember meeting him and saying, man, I want to be like that guy. That guy's incredible. So in order to be like him, I need to become a radiologist. Well, you know, I went all in. I went all in on veterinary radiology and it was, it was a, it was a wild experience, obviously in light of the, because you know, the ending, right. Is that I'm not a veterinary radiologist, but it was also a remarkable experience because of the word barriers that you mentioned. And Mm -hmm. there are, you know, we talked about some of the, the, some of the uh, pre-vet or vet, how they fall off track. And two of the highlights that they brought up in terms of, uh, falling off track were a challenge with chemistry of all subjects, but also discouragement from their advisors. And that is something that I felt in a very granular way um, when I when I left vet school. I, I met Dr. Bailey. He took off. I went and I applied for rotating internships. I didn't get one. I didn't match. So I had to just send out a bunch of cover letters, cold call, finally secured an internship. And I was deep within that internship, I spent long hours there, just like all my, the rest of my intern mates. I mean, I would have these giant flasks of green tea just to make it through the day and uh, to be sharp and bright and study and read. And I remember just putting my heart and soul into veterinary radiology. I'd done a presentation on a interesting imaging tool called PET scanning or positron emission tomography, bone scanning. And I'd done all of these things. And when it came time to apply for a residency, I I was told that I wasn't actually residency material. 
And that is interesting. It stuck with me. It stuck with me because I said to myself, all right, not residency material. What exactly does that mean? You know, and I felt like it was casting aspersions on me as an individual. It was a, a, a tantamount to sort of an ad hominem attack on who I was. And I, you know, you'll hear different terms. I don't want to necessarily call them microaggressions, but you'll hear different terms like, yeah, he's not as efficient or he's just not residency material or those sorts of things. And I just found that to be particularly pernicious because it wasn't that they were a, you know, um, these individuals were empowering you with the tools on how you could be better. Because let's take it for face value and prim, prima facie. Let's say I was horrible, right? Which I don't think so, but <laughs> let's say I was bad, right? That level of destructive criticism wasn't helpful for me going forward and um, wasn't helpful for me going forward in empowering me to be better. And I thought, I, 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 I thought it was... I thought it was unique to me. And I said, all right, well, Courtney, you just got to get better. But then I realized that after I talked to my brother, my father, other under those who are underrepresented in, in veterinary medicine, that this wasn't a bug. This was a feature. This was this level of discouragement was a feature of their 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 professional journey. And so that idea of, of mentorship and being discouraged by you know your advisors, particularly on that postdoctoral process, was something I never in a million years thought that I would have to contend with. But I do think when you start to look in the statistics, particularly on the human side, and you find that many of these underrepresented, those underrepresented in medicine were fall off track, off this pre-med track. And one of the reasons they cite specifically is discouragement from their advisors, it starts to let you know that there's something deeper going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that um, oh boy, there's so much to unpack here. And, and you know, one, um, well, I was looking at some, some data from last year's senior survey that is done by the uh, AVMA, mm -hmm. my colleague, Dr. Uh, Bridget Bain. And we were looking at um, the percentage of underrepresented uh, graduates who go into internship. And it's okay. statistically higher than their white counterparts. Okay. But then those folks don't persist. I mean, it's like nearly one third of mm -hmm. the graduating class last year went into um, to internship. Okay. Um, but, you know, we look at the the specialty data later, right? Or we look at, you know, if this is if this is a part of a larger trend, right? then why aren't folks persisting into residency? Right. So so we might still be under might still see, you know, dramatically underrepresented populations, but the drop off is substantial. Sure. Right. Um, sure. The drop off is substantial. And, and you know, I'm kind of we're kind of thinking, well, gee, um, is the number of folks kind of going into residency and internship, um, you know, reflective of desire or is it also reflective of, um, you know, this this kind of, hey, you're not quite ready to go into practice. You need a little bit more time. So, you know, do an internship and then you'll be, you know, great, and you'll sure. have, you know, and, and you'll get mentorship and da 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 right? Um, and so is that a part of a hidden curriculum that is discouraging, uh, you know, uh, graduates of color from going directly into practice? Right. Or are, there, are they really interested and pursuing specialization, and then to to your example, are they getting are you know are they getting less than constructive feedback that says, mm, "Great attempt," right, <laughs> right. But we don't think that you're really you know residency material because saying that you're not residency material is essentially saying, "Well, you're not." material to be, you're not, you're not good enough to be a specialist. Sure. Right? Not sure. good enough. Right. And so it's a pleasant, less <laughs> direct way. Right. Sure. But, but, you know, it raises this question of, um, you know, what does not only mentoring ship, but positive reinforcement also right. look like. Right. And so what, you know, so you talked about, you know, you're, you're studying, you've got the, the, the giant thing of green tea, <laughs> 
So, you know, I still, of course- I still drink that today. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a personal addiction, but yeah, you're, you're right. You've, you've got that. You, you bring up such a great point because I think it's multifactorial. And you know that obviously I, I I'm preaching to the choir. You're more learned on this topic than I am that it is not mutually exclusive. It is not trying to wrap it all up in a, in a box and a bow and say, this is the reason it's, it's multifactorial. When you look at uh, structural barriers and hurdles. There are some some that you had mentioned that uh, some hurdles that you can just walk around. Like if you are more affluent, or if you are um, come from a, a majority uh, demographic, who you you may have an ability to just go just go to undergrad and just let's just see what happens. You know, we've got a safety net. That's a way to walk around the hurdle. If you have a network in which people just know you and and you are sort of passively receiving those exams that's a way to walk around the hurdle but then there's people who literally just jump over hurdles like if you are in an internship and uh, you put down on your your application process for a residency these following references and I get your application they go I don't know any of these people but I know where you worked there I'll just call my buddy and I just go hey this person applied. And uh, I don't know any of the references, but I know you. What kind of person are they? And you might think, someone might think, well, that kind of stuff happens in every profession. But my, my point is, it might, but what it does serve to do is exacerbate, perpetuate, and augment these, uh, these, these disparities within the profession, because there you have somebody who literally just jumped over a hurdle. So if you already have in the profession less than 2% uh, within uh, of African-American, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about African-American, but I mean those yeah. underrepresented in general. If you already have less than 2%, and then the statistic is even more stark as a specialty, then you can see how these types of hurdles are, uh, they can perpetuate that issue, particularly if someone like me was not able to jump those hurdles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just really, um, yeah, these kind of walk arounds, jump arounds, sail arounds, right, are, um, they're real. We don't talk about them, um, but they are um, very real in terms of creating access. Sure but for a very limited population, right? So, so, um, so you know, we also had this uh, at AVMC, we just conducted our first well-being um, survey of residents and interns um, um, led by my colleague, uh, Mackenzie Peterson. And, and certainly we saw also that, you know, the, the working environments for those folks are probably a bit challenging. Sure, sure. <laughs> and we expect that there, we know that the that that it is, you know, a bit of a grinding kind of thing, but but we also see evidence that um even within the grind, some folks are getting ground a little bit more, right? right. So, some, some are finally ground, others yes. are just coarse, right? <laughs> some are yeah. coarsely ground, some yeah. are finally ground, right? And so, you know, so there is evidence that, um, you know, for um, trainees of color, for LGBT folks, for, um, you know, um, um, there, you know, there's just some evidence that, Folks that are even partnered, just and and you know, and men, men are kind of experiencing these mm -hmm. environments a bit different. Um, you know, I imagine that when you have that, and it's layered on with, oh, well, you're not residency material. You're right. really probably trying to anxiously, uh, when you finish, exit right. <laughs> left as quickly as possible. Right. So what made you stay? I mean, clearly you wanted this thing, right? You wanted yeah. this vision. You know, there there isn't, yeah, and I certainly don't want to think that, don't want that to be undervalued, that there's a lot of just inherent personality yeah. to inherent personality, drive, focus, dedication. But, you know, I guess the reason why I understate some of that is because I personally believe it this level, everyone has that. I personally believe that all veterinarians have drive, focus, determination, and the ability to work hard in yeah. the face of challenges. So I don't really think I'm special in that regard. I just think that my, and that's why I feel so honored and privileged to talk with you today about that journey, because, you know, after I applied for my 
rotating intern after I uh, I left vet school, I applied for a rotating internship, didn't get it. So mm-hmm. I had to struggle, bite and crawl my way to a rotating internship. When I'm in a rotating internship, they say, hey, you're not residency material. So I, you know, I applied for radiology residencies and you can imagine, right? If you apply for radiology residency and your advisors tell you that you're not residency material, when you get that application and on the application, they're like, well, I know he worked with so-and-so and they're not listed as a reference. What's going on there? I didn't get a radiology residency, but around that time, something interesting was happening in the profession. It was becoming so competitive that you couldn't jump from what's called, you know, obviously, you know, but other people, for other people, uh, what's called a rotating internship straight into a residency. It was becoming so competitive that you had to do something called a specialty internship. And uh, that was very popular in surgery. So eight out of every 10 applicants when they didn't just jump right from a rotating internship into a residency, they had to do a rotating internship, then a surgical internship in order to gain the residency. So what I did is I said, well, if there's these specialty internships propping up, popping up, um, maybe I can create something called a radiology internship. So I called around and I got a few schools to actually bite on this idea. Because keep in mind, here's what I'm actually trying to do. I'm trying to convince them that they need to create a position called a radiology internship and simultaneously convince them that I'm the best person for this new position that you've created. But I did. I got one. I got a radiology internship. It was remarkable. And they said to me, not only do you get, not only do you going to have a radiology internship, but it's going to blend in with a radiology residency. So it essentially be a four-year residency. I said, hallelujah, this is amazing. I'm so happy about it. Two months later, they said that they had a budget meeting and the funding for this new position they created fell out. Now, I don't know how true that was, but it was devastating, man. It was devastating. So I was like, all right. So I went back up to Connecticut. I worked for a year. And honestly, I know this is going to sound sort of overused and trite, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because I discovered that I truly loved veterinary surgery when I was doing general practice. And then that's where the real journey started. So I applied for a surgical internship in Las Vegas. I got that. Then I applied for a residency, didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So then I said, all right, so you've done a rotating internship and a surgical internship, and you still didn't get the residency. What do you do? Where do you go? And I talked to a few people and they said, Courtney, you know, you just don't know enough people again, back to that network, right? So I said, all right, well, how do I increase my network? They said, listen, if you do another surgical internship, right? And let's be clear. I mean, these are one year, you know, they're tantamount to indentured servitude, right? Yeah. So I'm like, all right. So I'm like, all right, let me do another. So I jump from Vegas to LA. I do another one year surgical internship. So now I've done of rotating and two one-year surgical internships. I'm I'm the intern king. I've done three internships. Now it's time for residency. Let me apply. I don't get it. Now I have no residency after doing three internships. And I'm like, what do you do? Where do you go? Do you just back it up? Because doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the definition of stupidity, right? So I said, all right. And I, I just started working, you know, and I walked into a uh, practice where I was doing a relief or or per DM veterinary medicine. And uh, they said to me, hey, you know, thanks for coming in today. You did such a great job. I said, oh, thanks so much. And they said, my understanding is that you were looking for a residency. And I said, yeah, I mean, I've been pursuing one for the past four or five years. They're like, well, you know, our surgeon is looking for a resident, that sort of thing. And literally on a Friday night, I became... A surgery, a surgery resin. So just like that, after I had been pursuing it for so long, um, it just materialized. And my point in telling you this sort of agony of defeat story is that, number one, if you are not achieving what you would like, the goal there for me is not necessarily to bang your head against the wall and expect a different result, is to turn your navigation system on and start rerouting recalculating, figuring out, rejiggering how you're going to get around there. And for me, it was doing another surgical internship. For others, it's do an orthopedic fellowship. For others, it's go to the school and spend a year. 
But if you don't have that safety net, if you don't have that financial safety net, which I didn't, by the way, I was eating a lot of uh, canned tuna and nothing, no, no, no disrespect to those who like canned tuna. It just no, wasn't my. But yeah, yeah. It, you know, you know so, it's a bit of a struggle meal sometimes. <laughs> sure, sure, It's a little bit of a struggle. So that that's my point there is recalculate, re-navigate. Um, if you are an underrepresented in veterinary medicine, it will be difficult to do that, particularly if you come from, let's say, an underfunded school where you don't have access, where they, you know, STEM is underfunded there. Let's say you don't have the ability to either walk around hurdles, jump hurdles, uh, or sail by hurdles through either implicit bias, through um, uh, your, your network through passive absorption of nuance for test taking and um, and uh, and and application. Those are the things that you may have to 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 the barriers you may have to encounter. And like you were saying before, you aren't saying that these are malicious. You're not saying two plus two equals four because four is bad. You're just saying that's what it is. It is four. You know, it's just four. And that yeah. you have to be conscious that that's a thing. And right. you have to be intentional about making it not a thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? It requires 100%. intentionality. So we actually have a few live viewers, and there's a question here during your internship. Uh-oh, uh, people are watching this live? Oh, no. Let me, uh, <laughs> let, me, uh, look, let me look better. People want to know, uh, during your internship years, were you able to be a part of research projects in hopes of um, to get published? Um, and if so, of course, did that help you get into a residency? So we've heard a bit of your, how do you get, how did you, you know, navigate to, to residency? But a part of that internship, you know, what did you get to do? Yeah, and that's that is part of that professional journey in that how do you make yourself more of a diverse applicant? I'm just gonna back up for a second to answer that question. I got a question recently of like, how do I make myself a better candidate for vet school? And mm -hmm. when I talk about becoming a diverse applicant, yes, it helps for those uh racial and gender and all of those demographics. But when I'm talking about diverse applicant, what I'm meaning is what I mean is your experience level. When I applied to veterinary school, I tried to uh, get experience in uh, beef and sheep, dairy, poultry, small animal research. So I tried to make myself a diverse applicant in that regard, just showing what you know, I have experience in these other areas. I know what the profession's about. And then on the specialty side, same thing. And part of that diverse applicant is, is possibly either research or publishing a study. And I was fortunate to publish a study on a question that, that I had all the time, which is the most common orthopedic injury in dogs we see is torn ACLs. And then the other, the second most common or arguably a contest for number one is kneecap dislocation or patella luxation. So my study was, if you have a dog whose kneecap is dislocating or experiencing medial patella luxation, what's the prediction that that dog is gonna go on to tear their ACL. And so I just poured over research. It was a retrospective study, which arguably isn't the most powerful as like a double-blinded placebo-controlled study. But what I did is I just poured over research. My mentors helped me and it answered that main question. And interestingly enough, there's obviously surgeons all across the country who cite that store, cite that statistic because it becomes very relevant in conversation. My dog comes in, my dog comes in, his kneecap is popping out. I get uh, the pet parent who asks, okay, well, his kneecap's popping out. What are the chances he's going to tear their ACL? And they'll say, well, according to a paper, you know, written by Campbell at all in 2010. So my point is it was a fun paper. And if you're not interested in research, just find a question that you've always wanted to know or something that has not been explored and put your heart and soul into that question because research, if you're not inclined to it, it can be an uphill battle. It can be a long slog. So you just find that question that you really want to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. So uh, yes, we are live. Uh, so oh, here we go. <laughs> Another question. <laughs> Do you have any experience with the possibilities mentoring program? If so, your thoughts. <laughs> Oh man, I think Possibility is a fantastic organization and uh, Valerie and Seth are, lead that organization. And what's remarkable is the speed at which they've been, to, been able to get things together. I'm talking about 
online um, online portals, mentorship activities, uh, talks, events, and just the volume that they're able to put out is is incredible. But here's what I will say: is this is that I am ha- I'm heartened by the fact of when we're we, we're having this coalition of consciousness in this country where we're all examining and really taking a magnifying glass to the spirit of social injustice and social change, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what's happening is I feel there's been like a league established where there's affinity groups, uh, excellent groups like Possibilities. There's the AVMA, DI Commission, uh, ACVS, DI Commission, and DVMC, which stands for Diversified Veterinary Medicine Coalition. All of these groups, I call them teams, all play for the same league. And I think that if we can use a league and have more streamlined uh, communication, more streamlined, <clears throat> more streamlined promotion, excuse me, of what uh, of what's happening so that we don't necessarily concentrate all our efforts in one spot. I think that'll be great because uh, an organization and you, you mentioned possibilities, an organization like them can help to address specific pipeline issues that maybe AVMA can't address because of the speed at which the organization moves or maybe ACBS can. I mean, and I mentioned ACBS because you and I are talking about specialization, but I just find that um, they can all help. Now, here's one critique I've heard, and I'd be very curious to know, uh, Dr. Greenhill, your position too, is that the one critique against this league, these teams on this league, is that we are becoming over-balkanized, right? There's too many of us, and we're not necessarily communicating to advance the effort in unison, and uh, this constellation it should be more like should be more unified and streamlined. I, that that's the only necessarily critique I've heard about this recent awakening. Yes, uh, that would be um, um, a challenge that I see. I think that um, I think that as groups, um, particularly. Um, I, the affinity groups that have, are a bit more identity based as each of these groups kind of are taking the hit, if you will. Right. So so last year and even now with the Chauvin trial actually happening, like, you know, as we record this, um, certainly, you know, so much attention has been on um, African-Americans. But then you've got issues around immigration. And so, you know, our Hispanic and Latinx brothers and sisters and non-binary folks are like, hey, like, what's going on with our folks? And then, of course, um, you know, COVID has um, uncovered, um, because it it wasn't, it's not new, (laughs) but uncovered and made it rise to the surface, this this, um, horrible anti-Asian American sentiment, that there's this kind of there's a little bit of what about us? What about us? What about us? Right. And, and, um, and, you know, I don't criticize that because I think that it's, it's true. Um, and that we need to pay a lot of attention to, um, to, to each of these, um, experiences, but in terms of kind of that systemic level where we're trying to drive change at the, at the systems level, which is where it really makes a difference. I think that I'd love to see, um, us really kind of get it together, pull it in and, you know, huddle and, and, and do that because individual change is great. We right. want individual change, right? At that local level, anti-racist, da 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 da. But if we really actually want to see real change, you right. gotta go at the systems level. You gotta attack that um, some of these things that, again, aren't in aren't weren't necessarily designed to be exclusionary, but they were created in an environment and with a lens that didn't include anybody else. Right. Right. So, so, so we have to kind of, you know, elbow, strong elbow in there. So yeah, yeah, a couple other questions, but I I don't, I do want to get back to this, this story about kind of, you know, I'm interested in hearing what you see as opportunities with the specialty colleges now. Cause I mean, you know, it, when I did the show um, again, low key um, shout out episode 83, go back in the podcast and listen to it. Um, you know, a lot of your colleagues were on live watching and they're like, we're shout out our organization. We're working on it too. Wait a minute. Like the radiologists are cool. Like, wait, 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 the bovine people. Like, and so everybody was, 
was kind of online saying, us, us too, shout right, us out. Right. Us out. So we're awesome. working on it, but what are the opportunities that you see for, for you know, um, the specialty colleges to advocate and make change? I see an opportunity for specialty colleges to make change by looking particularly at leadership, right? If I was to... If I was to pull up just an image of the uh, leadership, the the leadership of these specialty colleges, what does that look like? And what has that looked like the past 20 years? Because mentoring to me isn't necessarily uh, only one-on-one. Sometimes you might see symbols, mentors uh, who are just a little bit distant from you, who are in leadership positions. You're like, ah, that's my mentor. And what can happen is that once you see living, breathing examples of that, that can stimulate interest, but it also can open the doors to uh, passionate and more diverse uh, and more um, less homogenous, I should say, less homogenous profession, more pluralistic uh, inclusion in, in the profession. So I think that for me, when I think about opportunities, I'm so happy to see, just like what you said, particularly in my college, that the establishment of a you know a hardworking group of surgeons who are, even though they have their own day jobs and we're all super busy, as they still carve out time to number one, create an organization and all the trappings that go with an organization, mission statement, bylaws, all of these sorts of things, uh, working on establishing an online uh, repository for information and connection, which is a a website. Uh, And like you said, that's happening across disciplines. Now, if you wanted to gather together all of the um, those who are less represented in veterinary medicine in the specialty fields, you might gather maybe, I don't know, a hundred or or less than that across 10 different disciplines. Yeah. So yeah. I think that there's definitely an opportunity there for uh, those who are in specialty medicine, regardless of whether it's surgery, internal medicine, radiology, poultry, you know, large animal medicine, is all of us to say, all right, well, there is active process and an active effort happening on the primary care level, what about the secondary care level? And do we need to be so disparate in our organization or can we actually uh, coalesce under one umbrella? So I see the future is more a unified effort, but right now I am happy to see and heartened by the fact that regardless of your specialty college or regardless of what you're aspiring to do, I do believe there are people there who are passionate or working towards that. And if they're not, that's where you come in. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great. So uh, I got I have a, I do have another kind of question. So what is the responsibility of the colleges? You know, so so we we talked a bit about how like nearly at least last year, one in third three, sure. you know, underrepresented, racially underrepresented graduates kind of went into internship, and then you know. Um, that there's evidence that if that's part of the trend, they're not they're not persisting, right? Or or maybe they are just not showing up yet because they had an experience like yours, where it's like, okay, so there's a lag time of you know two, three, four years or whatever, right? So what can the colleges, the specialty colleges, um, do to kind of nurture interest among underrepresented um, students and soon to be graduates? And and kind of what needs to happen even in the internship kind of space to nurture and encourage persistence. Yeah, I definitely think that the colleges, what I like about that question is that it recognizes that something needs to be done. Because I think that for me has been a challenge and a hurdle is like, why are we even talking about this diversity stuff? Why is this even important? I I mean, I don't look at race. I just look at how good of a surgeon you are, that kind of thing. And that really ignores some of the amazing differences that we have. So I like that. What is the responsibility of the colleges? Number one, it's a recognition that we can't persist like this. And uh, having less than 1%, and I'll just mention African-American in, in, yeah. in the College of Veterinary Surgeons, less than 1%, that can't, that's untenable and unsustainable. At least it has been sustained, but it's not a good thing that it's being sustained. And I think the responsibility of the colleges is to make sure that they they leverage that passion and that drive 
from these diversity, equity, inclusion committees to find out where their efforts would be best utilized. Can, let's take the ACBS, can we reach back towards veterinary school and, and visit veterinary schools and partner with veterinary schools and highlight individuals who have taken an interest in surgery so that they are aware of our college and how much fun it is and how um, fulfilling the college can be? Should we also do that on the internship side? So should we provide um, you know, continuing ed and access to continuing ed so that people can say, wow, this is a really fun and, and, and enjoyable experience to possibly join a CBS. And then undergrad, should we also be highlighting and showing those who are in the pre-vet track or just in the, the healthcare track, just in the healthcare track, whether it's dental, nursing, veterinary medicine, and ACVS, you know, reaches out to those individuals that can definitely skew some people like, hey, man, I mean, I was for a, like a, a month, I was thinking about podiatry. So my point is like, when you have somebody who is, you know, not fully baked yet, somebody who's, they're about to congeal, and you hit them at those key pipeline issues and everybody congeals, as you had mentioned earlier, we started out, you said that males, you know, congeal in their idea <laughs> a little bit later in life, you know, where they're going to congeal. If you hit them right at that stage before they're fully baked, you know, I definitely think it can help. So I do think that the, the answer to the question is what's the responsibility of these specialty colleges? It is to reach out all along the pipeline and connect and either partner with organizations schools or individuals to highlight their their college. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for that. And I'm going to take uh, host liberties and add to it. Um, yes, please, that please. is, you know, a lot of times um especially on the mentoring front folks are like, "Oh, but you know, we just don't have um, you know, if, if it's only 1% um African American and, right. you know, the 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 college of surgery, then, you know, wow, like who's going to do this work? Yeah, the rest of you. Like that's who's going to do the work. Right, right, right. <laughs> like like, you know, it's not this is not a chicken or egg kind of thing. Either you're all in or you're you're not, right? And so you can't also expect that 1% to do the heavy lifting, right? Sure, sure. So um, it, it really sorry, requires, sorry. yeah, go ahead. No, no, just to add on to you, because I do think we do focus a little bit on the reconciliation part, right? You know me, I've said this many times, there's two components, there's the truth telling and then the reconciliation. And what I like to hear is the reconciliation, what are we going to do about it? And like you said, the rest of you, I think that's important, but I still think there's a component of truth telling that hasn't fully happened yet. For instance, when I say less than 1%, I am basing that on a 2015 survey, right, that requires respondents. And you know, surveys aren't the best, but it's what we have. So when I'm mentioning these facts and figures and statistics, I'm pulling them from data that I don't even necessarily think is all that strong. So I I love what you said, and I completely agree with it. We got to focus on what do we do and who's going to do the work, but at the same time, I also think that we haven't fully talked about the truth telling. And some people are like, well, we could talk about this forever, right? Can't we do something about it? I'm like, we can, but I also think that we need to do some more truth telling. We need to get yeah, some more data. Truth telling, and and you know, I think that that this is. Um, I mean, I I love that because I think that that is um, really reflective, just nationally, of where we are, and that we we struggle with the truth telling part, which makes the the reality of reconciliation really hard, right? right. Because we're still like, yeah, yeah. But we still haven't talked about this one thing, <laughs> so we need to kind of do that. But, you know, getting back to that, that, that outreach, you know, certainly there should be an expectation that everyone is participating in that effort and that it's not just your diversity members who are doing that work, right? Um, Very good point. This is, um, this is the time for allyship and allyship looks like y'all getting on out there and going to go to these schools and going to go to talk to these students and saying, hey, we, we really kind of want to um, engage you and we want to tell you about surgery and radiology. So now I know exactly why this elephant is like behind you. I've been like, and wondering about, I'm like, okay, radiology, got it now. Like there's a connection there. I can't hide it anymore. I can't hide it. <laughs> Because I've been meaning to ask you about, like, what's the story with the elephant and, like, the bones? But now I get it. But, yeah. I mean, you know, it is that piece of um, let's not get hung up on who's supposed to do the work. All of us are supposed to do the work. 
right? And so to that end, we do have um, one last question um, from from the audience, Dr. Right. Uh, Dr. Dr. Mia Sukari out here. Uh, how do you recommend these initiatives? So, getting back to that previous question, um, you know, with all of the the um, the teams, right? All of the teams, um, you know, how do we get all of these initiatives to connect, um, align, connect, talk? So, driving and um, uh, conquering kind of the this this these barriers. Um, how do how do we do this? How do we pull everybody together? Yeah, how do we do pull everybody together? And I I know, and I I don't definitely don't want to mention names because everybody will reach out to them, but I know of a few really prominent and uh just such respected and esteemed veterinarians who are working in that effort to possibly bring uh these all under an umbrella. Um, how we work together is I definitely think that it's important, like you saying, for us to communicate and for us to basically show what's happening out there so you can say oh hey wait possibilities of working with the you know this particular organization they're doing outstanding work on the high school level or acs is doing outstanding work um you know they're, they're partnering at the university level they're working at uh hbcus and so as we promote these events as we stay connected in these events people will see what's happening however you are right there is not a centralized location where we can all get together and say, hey, here's what all the affinity groups are doing. Here's what all of the diversity uh, organizations are doing throughout the specialty colleges. And here's what AVMA is doing uh, for their, there is not a centralized location. As I mentioned, I feel like there are individuals, esteemed colleagues who are, are really working on this. But most importantly is, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of us are are just now starting to get our house in order, right? So the ACBS and DI, we're like, hey, what is our website going to look like? What are what are we going to do? How are we going to do the work? And it's going to be difficult for all of us to come under one umbrella when I, I, my umbrella is not fully fully extended yet. So I, we got to fully extend our umbrella, I think, before we can get under under one big one. But I think that's so critical is the communication. It's so I'm so glad that that question was asked because it's so critical that the communication should be streamlined. It shouldn't be, you know, a constellation. It really should be like a coalescence of all of these for one effort. All right. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And I do want to actually shout out uh, Dr. Carey because she does kind of help facilitate um, a group uh, with a lot of the affinity groups and um, kind of talking about some intersectional issues. So shout out to you, Mia. Yeah, and, so and not only, yeah, exactly. And not <laughs> only that is, you know, I know that this effort has been getting a lot of attention in 2020 and 2021, but Dr. Carey is one of those individuals who've been doing it for decades, right? Who's been putting in the work for decades. And a lot of them, and they could ask this question, a lot of them have not, but it's like, where were you guys 20, 30 years ago, right? But they're just focused on the now, they're focused on the present, and they're about moving forward. But they absolutely could be could be asking us that painful question, where were you when we were doing it? So yeah, I appreciate and applauding. That is, you know, I mean, yeah. And I think that it's really important for folks to also recognize that, I know, I know some people are like what I'm about to say gets kind of controversial because folks are like, but we are like veterinary medicine is a microcosm of <laughs> these national discussions. Right. And, 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 and I love this profession. I've spent most of my career in veterinary medicine. Love y'all. Not special, not that different, not that unique. There are definitely some unique things and attributes, but on the whole, no. still pretty reflective. Sure, sure. Okay, well, it's good to know that you know, we are. That's such a powerful point in that as we look at and take a magnifying glass to this whole issue, that veterinary medicine is not immune or we're not immunized to it because some might think, well, how important it could be in your profession? The focus is the animal and animals can be tremendously unifying and it brings disparate groups together because we all love animals. But we're not immune to this either. And we haven't been immunized simply just because the focus is the animal. We need to think about how the healthcare practitioners interact with each other. And that's where you'll see some of the issues that we're bringing up today. 
So um, we're going to start wrapping this thing up. I just want to say, because folks that know me really, really well know that I have a super petty side and I am so like delighted petty that you have like just become this amazing rock star. And so for the pop person who was like, uh, I don't think Courtney is like resident material. <laughs> so there's my yeah. petty. Um, I don't normally do that during Monday through Friday, but Saturday is like, there's my petty. There's my petty. I'm big time petty. So, um, but I will say, and, and um, as my very last question, you know, what do you want, um, you know, your your colleagues in the, across the profession, especially for specialists to know about, you know, DEI stuff? What, what do you want them to know? I would just simply say that this helps, these efforts and this awakening and these initiatives help all of us but we also have the benefit of helping another species. And I think not only does that underscore the beauty of veterinary medicine in which you can help people and another species, which is very uncommon in the healthcare field, right? You typically you only get to help one species and it ain't people. Uh, I mean, one species and it tends to be people and it's definitely not two species at the same time. Right. But I just think these initiatives and these efforts have the ability to help not only us, but it helps to get animals better care because when you have somebody who is, who has cultural, you see, you see somebody who looks like you, who's culturally been through what you've been through, who you see yourself in them, that helps bridge the gap of some of the healthcare disparities and biases that we have seen perpetuated for too long. And then secondarily, it helps get animals better care. Because if you can, if you can see as a pet parent or wherever you are, uh, as an animal owner, whoever you are, and you see in your doctor, somebody who looks like you culturally has been through what you do, it, they tend to resonate better the medical advice towards that pet. So, All right. Thank you so much for getting up on a Saturday, having this conversation. I just, I just so admire you. I really, um, you know, I think that, that, um, you know, there, this, this last year is, has been a real challenge for those of us that work in the DEI space. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're so excited. I'm so excited that so many people are talking about this and, you know, working on it and those types of things, but there's also a lot of emotional labor that kind of comes with this. Um, but, you know, I can count some of the the joys of my life in this last year certainly have been included um, and, you know, and meeting and chatting with you from time to time. And I really just want to say thank you for, for that. I really, really genuinely appreciate that. So. Well, thank you. I, like I said, you, I've had the pleasure of having you on my podcast i've seen your your profile which you know is it's been tremendous just skyrocket and like, like i said it is it is uh like i said a true luminary to be able to talk with you and and uh like i said it's an honor so i've had i've had a lot of fun i don't know if you have but it's all about me right now and that's what we're <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding but no seriously thank you it's been a lot of fun Thank you. Thank you so much. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, or of course, catch us on YouTube. Be sure to like the podcast page on Facebook. It's AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. And until next time, keep working on